tens of thousands uh, uh, of perpetrators in, in one of, you know, America's historically cherished uh, institutions. You know, the, the Boy Scouts of America bankruptcy um, that's been pending, that's now pending, um, has not brought parallel justice to survivors. What's the resolution going to look like for the 82,000 people that came forward? Uh, at the numbers the Boy Scouts are offering in this plan, it is pitiful. So for the, you know, the brave folks that did come forward and may or may not be fairly compensated, I, I, I do think um, they are making uh, the world safer for kids in the future. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice sought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Joining me again today are attorneys Mike Fow and Paul Slager to continue our conversation about their work against the Boy Scouts of America and the abuse in those cases. Um, what happened when a child was finally able to report? I mean, I, I'll start by answering that, that question. Uh, in terms of what happened when a child reported, I think that one of the patterns we noticed, if it can be called a pattern, is that there really was no coherent, um, clear uh, response. And again, like so many things, it varied troop to troop and it varied local council to local council, how situations like that um, were handled. 
And there just wasn't a clear uniform understanding of what to do. I think that when we asked those questions of executives of the National Boy Scouts organization, um, they had an answer and that answer was, well, that was supposed to be reported to our department. And then we would take that information and we would take it from there. We, so essentially they would say, give us that information. We're gonna add that to our database. We're gonna do an investigation. And if, if circumstances warranted, we will remove this person from the leadership position of scouting. Um, that's not really always what happened in practice. Um, sometimes they weren't reported at all to the National Boy Scouts of America organization because there wasn't a clear understanding at the local level of what they were supposed to do. Um, and there was no enforcement mechanism at all. Uh, other times it was reported and, um, and no one at the local level had any idea what happened with that information. Um, sometimes the leader was suspended, sometimes they weren't. There was never any explanation given as far as I could tell. Was there the any mechanism for report them to law enforcement? Well, you know, that's interesting. We're talking about trends uh, and I, I don't know if Paul will agree with this, but one thing that, that struck me uh, when I began to handle these cases and also re review the files is um, there, I, there was a trend uh, not to proactively uh, reach out to law enforcement. Um, and uh, if there is reference to law enforcement uh, in the uh, perversion files, it's usually some parents is called the police, not the, the local chartering organization, local leader or the local um, uh, council. And, uh, and then the other thing that, that I was struck by is the lack of investigation when a perpetrator was identified. So you would think uh, if, if child one says, I've been touched by you know, the scoutmaster, that, that Boy Scouts would go in interview the family members and, and the other boys in the troop and, and find out whether this is an isolated incident or, um, uh, or a pattern with the uh, perpetrator. And, and you really don't see that um, at, at all, um, which, I, which I think is interesting. But also, I, I think also is part of the systematic failure and what allowed so much abuse to be perpetrated over time. There were also, just to add to what Mike said, um, there were also some files where it was clear that one of the goals of the Boy Scouts of America was to try to make sure that it didn't become a story, that an instance of abuse didn't become a story. Um, and so there, is, there were certain files where it was pretty clear that the public relations component of sexual abuse was a significant concern to the Boy Scouts. And I remember seeing, and I can't identify the file, but I remember seeing some files where um, concerns were expressed in writing about, hey, this could get out if we don't, you know, we need to do X, Y, and Z, or this could get out. There were concerns about protecting the brand. And Mike has alluded to the brand several times. And I agree that like so many, um, you know, large corporate organizations, protecting the brand sometimes takes um, takes priority over a lot of other things. And I do, I do think that, you know, if you're asking about trends, I would say that another trend that we observed in going through these files and analyzing them was there was a desire to protect the brand. And, and, and there's a sense from reviewing these files that protecting the brand was 
was really a priority. And that's not always consistent with taking proactive steps to identify abusers or to support victims. And uh, we saw those inconsistencies play out in a number of the files we reviewed. Well, I'd, I'd add to that, Paul, um, on, on protecting the brand. It, one of the things that, that, that troubles me the most is um, even now in, in, in what, 2021, <laughs> 2022, <laughs> you know, 48 hours from now, uh, it's, it's almost uh, New Year's, after having the files released, after going through, you know, an 82,000 claimant bankruptcy, um, you still don't see the level of transparency from the Boy Scouts that, that you should, um, or that, I, that I'd like to see. Um, it, you know, admitting where the mistakes were made, uh, releasing all of, of, of the IV files, uh, and, and you just, don't see it. And um, it, it, no organization can, can truly move forward until it, it has been transparent. And, you know, we're 2021, you know, we're talking about a, a abuse that happened in the 50s, you know, 70, 60, 50, 40 years ago. And, and we still don't see full transparency. Uh, from the, the BSA. So regardless of how this bankruptcy uh, ends um, and how they emerge from the bankruptcy, I, you know, I would really like to see uh, BSA leadership, uh, you know, step up, be transparent and, and, and move forward. Um, but, but I haven't, I don't know what Paul's thoughts are, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> you know, the, well, I don't see it either, Mike, and I and I agree with you that it's it's necessary um, both for Boy Scouts of America, but more importantly for all the survivors of abuse. I mean, I I feel like that sort of accountability and transparency is such an essential part of the healing process for survivors of abuse. And I know that my clients who now have claims in bankruptcy don't feel don't feel like things have changed much along the lines of uh, accepting responsibility or being transparent in some of the ways you've described. And I think it would go a long ways to, to supporting those people if they would do that. And as well as just being, I agree with you, it's just, it's just good business at some point. Not that that's our concern, but it just, it would just make sense. It seems to me. So you're both leading me to a really crucial part of this conversation. And I don't even know that I have a question. I'm going to offer an observation and let you both comment on it. You know, we call this podcast parallel justice because we're really looking at justice outside of the criminal justice system, which so often doesn't work for victims. And, and it sounds like a lot of the scout leaders did not face criminal charges. I'm guessing the executives at BSA National have not faced criminal negligence charges, tra criminal negligence charges, because we know how rare that is. So your clients now have the civil justice system. They've sought and received maybe a small measure of justice through the justice system. But in most of these cases, what we do see are policy changes. And that's usually why victims say they are seeking this justice because they don't want this to happen to somebody else. I, I guess my question again, what are your thoughts on that? And what's it gonna take to make the changes? If an 850 
million dollar verdict and a bankruptcy isn't it. Um, no one knows how this bankruptcy is, is going to end. Uh, it has been contentious. Uh, it, it is a mess. Um, uh, I, I, I represent claimants in the bankruptcy. Paul represents claimants in the bankruptcy. Almost every lawyer that does the type of work that Paul and I do represents claimants in, in this bankruptcy. And, and right now, uh, we're, we're going to see there's, there's a vote, uh, vote whether to accept or reject the, 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 the Boy Scouts plan of confirmation. And we don't know at this point what those vote totals are. We'll know probably in a matter of, of, of days or weeks. Um, but I, I don't know that there'll be any sense of parallel justice uh, from, from the bankruptcy. Um, so it, it's really a, your, your statement or, or, or your question, Renee, uh, I mean, what's the resolution going to look like for the 82,000 people that came forward uh, at the numbers, the Boy Scouts are offering in this plan. It is pitiful. Um, and on reform, uh, you know, my observation, uh, of this, uh, and, and I, I followed the hearings, been at the hearings, uh, I've been involved in, in some of the, the mediation, you know, I, there's a privilege, so I can't talk about that, but boy, I, I know the Boy Scouts are desperate to emerge. They're always talking about, we've got to emerge. We've got to get out of this bankruptcy quickly. The, 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 and, and they, you know, they talk about the, the lifeblood of scouting depends on us emerging from this bankruptcy with our local councils intact and our charters intact. And, you know, what's it worth if there's no accountability? And that's the big question. What's, what's scouting going to be in, in five years? Um, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know anybody knows the answer to that. Um, yeah, I, I, that's right. I mean, I, my sense is that so far in terms of addressing parallel justice and, and the title of the podcast and how it applies to the situation, I, I would join in Mike's comments, which is that, you know, the, the Boy Scouts of America bankruptcy um, that's been pending, that's now pending, um, has not brought parallel justice to survivors. Um, I really would say in any way. Um, I think that one of the, one of the really injurious parts of of this bankruptcy filing is it, it deprived a lot of people the ability to pursue justice on an individual level. And um, when you have a large collection of people like this, it's really hard to get uh, to get justice. We we there's our, there are automatic stays in place that prevent us from asking executives the difficult questions and and prevent our clients from telling the stories uh, about their experiences and why those matter and all that's been taken away by the bankruptcy and the way the bankruptcy has gone so far, at least in my opinion, it is not, is no substitute for, for that pair that sort of parallel justice that our civil court system offers people. Um, it's really been taken away by this process. And, you know, I, I would love to remain optimistic that, Maybe there'll be some some parallel justice in the ultimate resolution of this bankruptcy. Uh, I don't feel very optimistic about that. I feel it's it's instead a deprivation of justice, um, and it has been so far. And it's really hard to imagine an outcome here that offers 
people a feeling of true accountability, you know, and that really, I think leads to a question, an interesting question about whether, you know, should Boy Scouts of America continue to exist post-bankruptcy? Mike said that, you know, this is a theme of, of their position in the bankruptcy is we need that we need to continue to exist. It's a very interesting question. Um, do they need to continue to exist? Do they deserve to exist? What hap- do we know what's happened to most of the perpetrators? Well, most of the perpetrators are dead oh. um, uh, because uh, you know the victims were abused in uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and you know it begins mm-hmm. to decrease in the 90s. Surprise, not surprisingly, when the Boy Scouts finally enacted um, uh, reforms and put in place. Uh, mechanisms to keep kids uh, safe. So sadly, most of the perpetrators are are, are dead, uh, or the criminal statute of limitations has run. So you know this is the, again the, the the theme of parallel justice. What do you do when your perpetrator's dead? What do you do when uh, the supervisors of the perpetrators are dead? And uh, what do you do when you, you can't sue them civilly? In, in many of the states. So it's just, and that's, it's always the case with, you know, that, that I guess I could say I'd advocate for no statute of limitations in any <laughs> state would be, you know, one, that would be parallel justice. But well, that is what we're advocating for in Connecticut, by the way, but um, I won't get into that. But uh, what I was going to say is it is important to know that some of the perpetrators were actually convicted of um, sex abuse criminally. And, um, you know, and in some cases, the, the confidential files that were maintained by the Boy Scouts of America, the only information in those files were, was a newspaper article containing uh, a story about the conviction. Um, so there were, there certainly have been predators who were Boy Scout leaders who were convicted of crimes over the years, um, but many others were not. But then there's a subset of, uh, when you look at the IV files, there's a subset of perpetrators who were convicted and then found their way back into scouting, uh, which is fascinating. We had a series of cases um, here in Washington state where uh, there was a camp medic uh, who was convicted uh, of abuse in the 60s in Iowa and then found his way to the West Coast and started molesting children in the 1980s uh, outside Seattle. So, uh, and and, uh, Paul's familiar with those cases uh, as well. Men who are abused as children are less likely to report abuse than girls and women. We also know that children who are abused, it takes them usually several years into adulthood to report their abuse. So given the 82,000 number of, of young men that have come forward that we know about who were abused and the fact that there's this bankruptcy, we know that there are probably others out there who have not reported yet. What happens to them? Well, I think the short answer is um, if, they have a cl- uh, if they have theoretically a claim that exists or that existed as of the date of the bankruptcy filing and they did not assert a claim in the bankruptcy filing, they will forever lose their ability to state that claim against the Boy Scouts of America. Well, and I was talking about third-party releases 
Um, another problem with these broad releases for the charter organizations and the local councils who haven't filed for bankruptcy is uh, it, it will apply to future claims as well. Uh, so this, this, this bankruptcy is a very, very big deal and rights of survivors are being extinguished um, potentially and, and that it is sobering. And, uh, you know, hey, oh, holding institutions like the Boy Scouts or like the Catholic Church, um, it, it's challenging. And, and, and this shows us part of the challenge and why it's so sobering, but also why it's so important uh, to come forward and uh, why it's important, you know, for survivors to really have a voice. Um, because I do think every, every person that comes forward, despite whatever level of compensation he or she may receive, you know, that I think that that voice makes things safer for, for children in the future. Um, but, you know, you use the term sobering, Renee, and it, it is, uh, it is sobering. Um, how many, how many, just how prevalent child sex abuse is in, in our society. Um, the one thing I'll add, and, and uh, I think a, one positive thing that survivors can take, and there aren't many, but, it, but I think it's a big one, um, positive thing that survivors can take from the Boy Scouts of America bankruptcy um, experience is that the Boy Scouts of America would be um, functioning business as usual if not for the loud voices of survivors who were courageous enough to come forward under difficult circumstances and say, hey, this happened to me, it's not my fault and it shouldn't have happened to me. Uh, and the people that represent them too, I mean, if it weren't for a critical mass of, of people who were willing to come forward and seek justice, there would, bankruptcy would not even be talked about. Um, so the Boy Scouts of America is in bankruptcy as a direct result of its own conduct, which permitted you know, mass child sexual abuse combined with a number of survivors of sexual abuse who were willing to say, I wanna do something about this. And I think without both of those components, there's no bankruptcy. They're just functioning like they always did. And I, and I think we can even go a step further back and say that without, without that combination of, uh, that is, you know, cultivation of abuse combined with people who are saying, you need to be held responsible for this. I think that's the reason there were those changes in the late 1980s, early 1990s that Mike alluded to where there was a safer environment created in the Boy Scouts. Um, you know, I would argue it wasn't safe enough. Um, I would argue they didn't go far enough, but they did do something and they did something because of the consequences of not doing something. Um, uh, it's a, it, Paul, it's a good point. You know, we are talking about maybe some of the negatives and sometimes it's easy to, to <laughs> you know, uh, be a little dark or a little negative when you're talking about just the, this really difficult subject matter. But I, I agree with Paul, if there is a, a silver lining to the bankruptcy, uh, it's gonna be either that BSA does not emerge and children are safer or whatever reconstituted Boy Scout entity emerges from bankruptcy, um, uh, it will be safer if for no other reason, uh, because society 
will will view the Boy Scouts and their mission and what they do um, differently, a little bit like the Catholic Church. Um, Catholic Church today is not what the Catholic Church was in the 1970s when I was a kid. Uh, it is not all powerful. It is not, <laughs> you, you know. And it's it, not it because get, they found God. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they don't. They don't get to do what they they want to do. Um, and families and parents who send their kids to Catholic schools, for example, uh, do that with with more knowledge and more safeguards. And if there is a Boy Scout entity that emerges from this bankruptcy, uh, families and parents and children uh, will be more fully informed uh, if they decide to to let their kids engage in scouting activity. So for the, you know, the brave folks that did come forward and may or may not be fairly compensated, I, I, I do think um, they are making uh, the world safer for kids in the future. So Mike and Paul, we've been discussing and the words have come up a few times, the ID files. We also know them as the perversion files or the confidential files. Can you explain to us what those actually are? Who holds them? What do they contain? And honestly, how did you find out about them and what has been released from them? So that was a lot of questions. If you could just give us an overview. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll start with, with the history of the files and, um, and maybe Paul can fill in any gaps or, or talk about the release of the files. So IV stands for ineligible volunteer files. Um, also, interestingly, uh, I believe the, the, it was the Boy Scouts who uh, referred to them originally as the perversion files. And in these files, uh, well, let me step back and say the files date back to at least the 1920s. So almost since the inception uh, of, of the Boy Scouts as, a, as an entity, in America uh, are these files. So what are the files? What the Boy Scouts began realizing 100 years ago it is that perpetrators were infiltrating the ranks uh, of scouting uh, for the purpose of, of harming children. Um, and we've talked about some of that. And uh, Boy Scout leaders and volunteers have to register. And what they were finding is a Boy Scout leader would be removed from one troop and they'd show up in, a, in another troop in another state and, and try to register again. So it was an attempt to keep track of ineligible, these leaders who had hurt children or uh, were in danger of hurting children would be ineligible to be registered um, in, in the Boy Scouts. And I think what started as maybe a, a good or laudable uh, idea eventually became uh, a, a, an albatross. Uh, you know, the files probably went from 10 to hundreds to, to thousands. And just, uh, I've got some stats here, but in, in litigation, um, one of the Boy Scouts' own expert um, identified uh, 7,819 perpetrators uh, between 1944 and 2016 uh, the Boy Scouts' own expert identified 7,819 perpetrators. Uh, that's not even the complete set of files because no one's seen the complete set of files. Uh, the Boy Scouts have never uh, released the files uh, after 2016, I believe. 
And they've also destroyed files when perpetrators died. So, um, you know, you're talking in excess of 10,000 perpetrators probably abusing kids. Um, uh, so it, it really, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive repository of data and information about uh, men who were infiltrating scouts and abusing or trying to abuse children. So I don't know if I've done that justice, Paul, but but maybe you could. Yeah, I think you have. And, and I mean, I might add that that's the number of abusers, not the number of abused. And, yeah. you know, we talked earlier about the trends that we see. You know, one of the trends is repeat offenders, right? So you have an abuser who has a fresh group of children joining the troop each year. Um, well, you know, the people age out and graduate from the troop. So each one of those perpetrators, it's reasonable to assume, isn't doing this a single time. Um, they're doing this over and over and over again. Um, that tends to be the pattern we see with child abusers. And, uh, and there's no reason to think that there'd be an exception within the scouting programs. The other thing I would add about these files, so these files were kept and maintained exclusively by the National Boy Scouts of American Organization, and they were um, kept strictly confidential from any of the local councils who did not know that this repository of files of documents existed, who were not shared any data from those. Um, and the Boy Scouts of America um, argued that it used that registry in order to compare the names of people who were applying to be scoutmasters. And if the name popped up as being in the registry, they, they may be deemed ineligible. And that that was the exclusive purpose of those files, which really, if I can offer an opinion on it, seems like a misappropriation of really important information, uh, really limited use of that information. But what happened is once they assembled the files, as Mike described it, they were maintained in locked file cabinets. Uh, one or two people in the entire um, national headquarters of the Boy Scouts of America had the keys to those cabinets and were able to access them. So they were kept strictly confidential, even within the national headquarters of the Boy Scouts of America. And it's interesting, the term IV files or ineligible volunteer files, that only surfaced as a term, uh, as a description or a title of these files um, after, <laughs> it seems for the purpose of litigation, um, internally for many, many decades, those files were either called perversion files or the confidential files. That was quite literally their name. And, and I, uh, my guess is um, some lawyers or some PR reps decided that perversion files and confidential files uh, did, wasn't going to go, those weren't going to go over very well with juries, ineligible volunteer, which is a much more self-serving way to title those files. Uh, maybe a more marketable way to describe them. So I, the, you know, that I thought thought that was interesting too. When I was one time deposing one of those two people who had the keys to the cabinets, he was continually referring to those as perversion files or confidential files, not as ineligible volunteer files. And he had to be sort of self-correct a number of times to use the terminology that his bosses wanted him to use. And I think your comment was right that it's it's all it's infuriating that that's what it was used for and not for any other purpose. Well, and also, uh, again, when we're talking about the files, I, I don't want your your listeners to um, believe that that that's the the entire library of, of perpetrators. 
you know, when we talk about the, the you know, almost 8,000 known perpetrators, these are just the ones who were caught or that the Boy Scouts happened to investigate enough to, to put in their files. I mean, yeah, you're, you're probably at least half, if not more of the cases that, that I've handled involve perpetrators that are not in the IB files. So we, we're talking about, I mean, this, think about this, Renee, tens of thousands uh, uh, of perpetrators in, in one of, you know, America's historically cherished uh, institutions. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, and the fact it was, yeah, as Paul said, the quote unquote confidential files, I, I think that says it all. Yeah, I, I actually, I think of all the Boy Scout cases I've done, I've had a single perpetrator ever be a part of the confidential files. Uh, all the rest of the perpetrators did not appear in the files. So the numbers really are, are pretty stunning. That's terrifying and disturbing. Agreed. So Mike and Paul, we're about out of time today, but I want to finish up with last thoughts from you. This is frankly one of the bleakest podcasts and conversations that I've had. Um, given the number of survivors, the number of perpetrators, the years that it's been going on, and really the lack of progress by Boy Scouts to make any changes. Is there a silver lining for either of you? And is there a silver lining for victims here that, that they can really look to? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't use the term silver lining, um, but here's what I'm, I'm hopeful about uh, and, and what I, I hope um, your, your listeners hear and, and, and hopefully take to heart is the fact that 82,000 people came forward is tragic, but the fact that 82,000 people have come forward and, and at least said, this happened to me uh, I am hopeful uh, that that leads to, to change, not only in Scouts, but in other institutions. Every voice matters. And we've been talking about the bankruptcy and, uh, and while Paul and I are both pessimistic uh, about some of the things that have occurred in the bankruptcy, um, your, your listeners should know that there are, there are lawyers and advocates and, and survivors fighting very, very hard in this bankruptcy on behalf of survivors, uh, fighting hard uh, to ensure that uh, this isn't, uh, that the Boy Scouts don't emerge uh, easily with, with cheap settlements or, or inadequate settlements. And, um, and I am hopeful uh, that the judge uh, will do the right thing and, um, and, and fashion a plan that is as fair as possible uh, under these these difficult circumstances. The other thing I would add, Renee, um, in terms of um, the importance of what's happening with the with this whole Boy Scout bankruptcy and the impact that it can have, sort of on larger society and other survivors of abuse, I don't think we should lose sight of how uh, powerful it is that so many people have come forward in force together. 82,000 people in, uh, in a period of um, months stepped forward and said, you know, we were willing to assert a claim um, because we were abused and because it wasn't our fault. 
I think that's really unprecedented in legal history, at least in this country and probably in any country, that 82,000 strong um, would step forward and assert their rights as survivors of child sexual abuse. It's a really powerful statement and I hope it empowers others. And I do think that that's something that, you know, in an otherwise really upsetting, um, grim scenario, I do think that's, that's a positive thing that we shouldn't lose track of. Excellent thoughts. Well, Mike and Paul, I want to thank you both again for joining us for this conversation and thank our listeners for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice. As always, if you would like to contact either Mike or Paul, we will be putting their contact information as, long, as well as their websites in the show notes. Thank you for joining us again and please join us next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.